Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Noren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about opioid withdrawal, and we're also going to be talking a bit about relapse prevention. Now, as you've probably heard some of our previous episodes, we've done a long list of episodes on opioids, but we haven't really talked in depth about opioid withdrawal, and it is quite an interesting phenomena, and it's something a lot of our patients will go to great lengths to avoid. So, Fergal, can you talk to me a bit about opioid withdrawal, in particular some of the symptoms of opioid withdrawal and why they're so distressing to some of our patients? Yeah, so you got to understand, first of all, any withdrawal process is predicated on a dependency syndrome. And opioid dependency is the prototypical drug addiction, isn't it? You know, that's, that's, that's when I went into addiction medicine, that's what I was first confronted with, is how to manage, you know, heroin addiction. And yeah, you're right, opioid withdrawal or heroin withdrawal was, was seen as the most awful experience that any patient could go through. So, I, you know, first of all, what is it? So I think of opioid withdrawal as the combination of a hyperarousal of the body's regulatory systems plus a flu-like illness. So if we, if we can dig down a little bit into those, you know, those symptoms. So autonomic hyperarousal. So we've got tachycardia, high, high, high heart rate. We've got uh, high blood pressure, hypertension. We've got fever. We've got um, we've got uh, sweating. We've got dilated pupils. You know, these are all symptoms of having a lot of adrenaline coursing around your body. And then we've got uh, the flu-like illness. So we've got yawning, runny eyes, runny nose, runny rear. So that's how I think of it. And I suppose I, I use those two analogies or those two uh, syndromes, as it were, to distinguish opioid withdrawal from alcohol withdrawal. Because in alcohol withdrawal, you've got the autonomic hyperarousal, but you've also got the perceptual abnormalities. And so that's how I kind of separate out opioid from alcohol withdrawal, because they've both got autonomic hyperarousal. But one's got uh, the flu-like illness symptoms, and the other one's got the perceptual disturbance. How do you conceptualize opioid withdrawal? Quite, quite similar to what you've mentioned, Fergal. And yeah. the symptoms of opioid withdrawal are quite clearly demarcated. And I know you, similar to I, when we're seeing patients in the emergency department or in our, in our outpatient rooms, when we are assessing someone for opioid withdrawal, we usually use something called the clinical opioid withdrawal scale, which will have the list of symptoms mm. that you've pretty much demarcated. There's both objective and subjective symptoms yeah. um, that that are hallmarks of opioid withdrawal. Yeah. The objective symptoms being um, yawning, rhinorrhea, lacrimation, tremor, piloerection um, mm. as well. Yeah. But there are the subjective symptoms as well, such as GI disturbance, anxiety, agitation yeah. as well. Yeah. So, so when I'm assessing someone, I'm usually going through a checklist to make sure that I've got the right diagnosis. When we're talking about some perceptual abnormalities, that is not consistent with an opioid withdrawal. So you're automatically beginning to think, is, there, is this a polysubstance withdrawal? Is there something else going on that I'm missing? And seeing what you can do to piece together this puzzle. 
So in some respects, an opioid withdrawal is, is quite good in the sense that you've got a bit more of concrete information to work with. And once it kind of strays away from that, you are automatically beginning to think of a few different things. But I guess a question I wanted to pose to you, Fergal, is that we've talked about opioid withdrawal, but opioids are a big class of drugs. Are all opioid withdrawals created equal? As in, the time frame will vary depending on the type of opioids. Yeah. Um, but have you noticed anything in particular about certain opioids that, that give you pause or consideration? Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot to say in that. Um, I think the severity of the opioid withdrawal, um, I think, is dependent on the type of opioid and also the the, the degree of tolerance. Uh, and so, you, I think I think first of all, there's a, it's universally recognised. Some people have severe withdrawals, and some people don't have. You know, they've got mild opioid withdrawal, and I think that's a function of first and foremost, the amount of opioid they take. So for instance, you know, someone who just dabbles a little bit on heroin is not going to go through that much grief, whereas someone who's taking, injecting maybe, you know, half a gram a day is going to have a serious problem. So there's the amount, but also, um, you know, thinking about drugs like, or very lipophilic opioids like fentanyl, you know, so fentanyl accumulates in fat. So, I've seen prolonged opioid withdrawal in people who are who are um, who, who are fat, basically. So what happens is, you know, you stop opioids, you stop fentanyl, and you wait for the withdrawal, and it, it happens a little bit, but then it doesn't happen that much because you end up with this fat leaching out. Sorry, with the fentanyl leaching out of the fat stores, so you get just enough to take the edge off the withdrawal, but it's constantly going, and you're not actually you're not actually going through a proper withdrawal, and so it. it, it doesn't necessarily increase the severity of the withdrawal, but what it does is it prolongs the action of the withdrawal. So you've got to understand a little bit about the, the kinetics of, of the lipophilicity of, of the relevant opioid. I mean, another example would be, uh, you know, withdrawal from opioids, which are dependent on prodrugs. So for instance, codeine. Codeine is, is a prodrug of morphine. And so, you know, it's actually in and of itself a partial agonist of, um, of the mu receptor. So really, think of codeine as simply a morphine delivery device at a ratio of roughly one in ten. So, you know, I don't really think that codeine withdrawal is that that severe compared to heroin. And another option would be loperamide. You know, we've heard of you know loperamide being a um, it's an antidiarrheal drug, but it is an opioid, and you can saturate uh, you can you can actually um, saturate absorption mechanisms, and so you can actually get absorbed just by passive diffusion, if you take enough of it. Um, and that can cause withdrawal, but again, it's not that severe. So again, we're, you know, we're talking about whether or not the, the withdrawal is, is, is from a drug that is a, uh, you know, a, a full agonist. And again, you know, this moves me on to the point about buprenorphine. Uh, you know, buprenorphine, by definition, is a partial agonist. People withdrawing from partial agonists tend not to experience the same severity of withdrawal as, as they do from whilst they're withdrawing from full agonists. So in a roundabout way, what I'm trying to say is that opioid withdrawal is not the same in everyone, as you said, and it's got to do with the amount that you're taking, the level of dependence, uh, the lipophilicity of the opioid, and also whether or not it's a full or partial agonist. And I think to add on to that as well, it also depends somewhat on the half-life and, and the duration of effect of the opioid. Mm. You and I have seen 
pretty prolonged withdrawals from yeah, methadone, yeah, yeah, which is a super, yeah. which is a, one of those uh, opioids with a super long half-life. So I've seen people go through days of opioid withdrawal and, yeah. and, and they're so miserable and, and yeah. it's horrific. Yeah. So it, it is one of that combination of factors that you're talking about are the things that kind of impact that, that opioid mm. withdrawal. And I guess we've mentioned um, buprenorphine and just to kind of hijack this talk a tiny bit, um, you've mentioned buprenorphine being a partial agonist and that partial agonism can be an impact in withdrawal, can't it, in the sense that when you're going from a full agonist to a partial agonist or accidentally prescribed a partial agonist when someone's on a full agonist, that can trigger a precipitated withdrawal, uh, Virgil. Could you could you explain yeah. what a precipitated withdrawal is? So a precipitated withdrawal is basically when you get a partial agonist displacing a full agonist from a receptor, which then triggers a withdrawal syndrome. So we know that buprenorphine is a partial agonist. We also know that buprenorphine has high avidity with the mu receptor. So therefore, if you've got someone with neuroadaptation who's dependent on opioids and they've got lots of heroin hanging, hanging about, and so the heroin is in the is, is think of heroin as the warm bath, and think of the, the person in the bath as being the mu receptor, right? And all of a sudden, you chuck in buprenorphine. What you're effectively doing is you're emptying out half the bath water because it's not a half an agonist; it's, it's it's a partial agonist. All of a sudden, and and because you're because buprenorphine has has also got a lot of avidity, it's basically chucking out, it's displacing half the bath water from the bath, right? So it's two actions. So it's reducing the bath water by half and it's chucking out the rest of the bath water. All of a sudden, that person's going to get very cold. That mu receptor is going to get very cold and you are going to go into a precipitated withdrawal. Now, there is some debate as to how severe a precipitated withdrawal is compared to you know, a natural withdrawal. I, I think I've seen more... Uh, when, you, when we're transferring people from full agonist, especially methadone to buprenorphine, People, people get very distressed if they accidentally have precipitated withdrawal. But to be fair, for me as an, as, a, as an observer, and I freely admit this is just me making my own observation, I don't see the physical signs of withdrawal in precipitated withdrawal quite as often as I would in you know, a non-precipitated withdrawal in someone who's maybe just not had their, had their next hit of heroin. What I see in people going through that transition from a full agonist to buprenorphine is a lot of emotional distress and a lot of anxiety. But I don't get the diarrhea. I don't get the, the sweating, the profuse sweating. I don't get the profuse runny nose. Um, you know, I don't, get, I don't see the goosebumps. What I see is someone who is very, very anxious and distressed. And, but that's just my own personal experience. What about you, Philippe? Do you, do you think that precipitated withdrawal is more or less severe than a, than a non-precipitated withdrawal? I think um, to answer this question, and I'll probably, I'm probably going to answer this in a roundabout kind of way as well, is it kind of goes to that biopsychosocial model of mm. addiction. Like you, I see a lot of emotional distress around uh, the transition aspect, usually from methadone to buprenorphine, yeah. and people complaining of withdrawal. I have seen two patients have objective symptoms of withdrawal, as in profuse rhinorrhea, lacrimation, yawning, piloerection, tremor. Mm. Uh, so I've certainly seen 
uh, withdrawal symptoms that, that, that are objectively opioid withdrawal symptoms. But I have also seen a lot of patients complaining of feeling like they're in withdrawal um, and that emotional distress associated with it. Yeah. Which I guess brings me to my next question. And it's a bit of a difficult one because I don't think there's one definite answer for this. But what's your approach to managing precipitated withdrawal? There's a school of thought where people say once you're in precipitated withdrawal, just try and buprenorphine your way out of it. Yeah. There's another thought of there's another school of thought where people will say abandon the attempt, just try and saturate the person with full agonists and symptomatically manage them. Do you have any hard and fast rules in in this field, Fergal? Yeah, yeah I, I I I agree with you with everything that you've said because you know you know half of my mentors say you can never actually deal with withdrawal symptoms with with buprenorphine whereas the other half say yeah just push on through i suppose the analogy that i use is if you're 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 crossing from one island to another island and you're in a boat right and you're halfway between the two islands you're going to have the same amount of grief trying to go back to the previous island as you are going forward to the to the final islands the, the, the new island um, how have I managed it personally? I, I've actually seen precipitated withdrawal in um, in an inpatient unit. I've managed it with large doses of diazepam, actually, and more more buprenorphine. Uh, if I saw it in the community, I would probably abandon abandon the attempt. I, I, I don't actually do transfers for methadone to buprenorphine, for instance, in the community. Uh, not certainly not in that way where you do a sudden rise in um, you do a sudden uh, transfer from methadone to to uh, buprenorphine. So when I'm when I'm doing that switch in the community, I tend to use a modified Bernese method where you you're, you're switching gradually over twelve weeks, so you don't get that precipitated withdrawal. So so really, all of my what I'm trying to say is all of my experience of precipitated withdrawal really is in inpatient management and thinking about it, it's a lot of reassurance, a lot of Valium, a lot of clonidine. And more, more buprenorphine. Yeah. So I, I'm the push. I, I, I suppose thinking about it, I'm the in the camp that pushes through. So what? So if you had to have a choice, what would you do? My practical experience is I've usually abandoned the attempt and gone to full agonist, and that's usually guided by the patient yeah. who is pretty traumatized about the effect mm. of buprenorphine, and usually yeah. the patients are quite insistent on going back to what they know. Yeah. So um, especially if it's methadone, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. The question then becomes if it's um, a, a non-prescribed opioid, what do you do? And then I think that's the time when you have a discussion with the patient about their treatment options and what, what one can prescribe. And essentially, if it's opioid substitution therapy, it's either going to be buprenorphine or methadone, and then having that discussion and having that frank discussion with the patient about what you can and can't do. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I suppose to highlight is just how awful the experience is. I mean, here we are, you know, pontificating on a, we don't really see the physical symptoms of our precipitated withdrawal. But let's not underestimate just how awful it is for our patients. And I suppose really I have to reflect on the fact that emotional distress is such a powerful driver of behavior um, you know, and, and, and it, it drives ongoing substance use. It also drives the fear of withdrawal. Uh, you know, and I, and I think really, you know, I don't think we need to, I think we should acknowledge the severity of the suffering rather than be seen to be trivializing that suffering. You know, emotional distress is truly awful for a lot of people. And it, and it impedes what 
we as clinicians would see as appropriate good medical care. Indeed. And I guess also talking about withdrawal and I think from one of your earlier comments about some of the drugs that you'd use to, to manage opioid withdrawal, usually with opioid withdrawal, it, it's symptomatic management. Mm. What are the drugs that you use um, in particular um, to manage opioid withdrawal? And I guess um, clonidine has come up and you have mentioned it. Yeah. Can you talk to us about the effects of clonidine in particular? Yeah. So the way I conceptualize the management of symptomatic relief from opioid withdrawal is first of all, it's the holy trinity of gastrointestinal fortitude. So by that I mean something to stop you puking, something to stop the gut cramps, and something to stop you shitting everywhere. So Maxilon, Vascopan, and Loperamide. Then we're talking about something to stop the aches and pains, so Panadol and Nurofen. And then we're talking about something to stop the autonomic hyperarousal. So remember that, you know, opioid withdrawal is characterized by this overstimulation of the, of the nervous system. So you get this adrenaline rush. And so there's a particular drug called clonidine, which, you know, is an alpha-2 receptor agonist. You know, what does that mean? Well, basically what it does is it shuts down the signal from the brain that says to the body, Yippee, it's time to be overstimulated. Start getting all the adrenaline out. So it calms everything down. And it can be useful in, um, in, in lowering the, the, the physical manifestations of the agitation and the autonomic hyperarousal associated with, with precipitated withdrawal. The other drug that I also use is Pramapexol because that's a treatment for restless legs. And I see a lot of restless legs, you know, this, this inability to sit still, especially at night, the inability to sleep because you've got to keep your legs moving. And that's very debilitating and causes a lot of fatigue and insomnia and distress. So I use Pramapexol as well, certainly in the short term. And then, you know, the, the debate around whether or not you can use diazepam as part of withdrawal. You know, some of my colleagues are purists and say, oh, absolutely not. You can't use it. It's, it's, it's blurring the muddying the waters where some of my other colleagues say, well, you know, short-term use under supervision. Why not? Um, I'm kind of, I'm, you know, halfway. I sit in the fence a lot of the time. Sometimes I give it, sometimes I don't. I tend not to give diazepam if there's already diazepam on board or if there's already the use people are already using benzodiazepines for whatever reason. I tend not to add it in. So that's how I that's how I conceptualize the, the symptomatic management of precipitated withdrawal. Now, before we go on to comparing that with buprenorphine-based short, sharp detoxes, you know, what what's your recipe for managing? short-term opioid withdrawal? Pretty similar to, to what you've outlined. I think the, the treatment options for, for symptomatic management of opioid withdrawal are what you've said, managing the gastrointestinal side effects, managing that autonomic hyperactivity, and also providing reassurance. I think with regards to the diazepam question, I think it depends on your location and the patient's um, disposition in terms of other medications and medical conditions. So, for example, in an inpatient setting, uh, provided there's no significant contraindications, I would give a PRN low-dose amount of diazepam, probably around 20 or 30 milligrams of diazepam mm -hmm. a day. On, on, the 
on the proviso that this is only going to be used while you're an inpatient yeah. and you will not be discharged with any benzodiazepines. Yeah. In an outpatient setting, I would not be using any benzodiazepines because I think that would just muddy the waters and just add to the complexity. And opioid withdrawal, especially in an outpatient setting, is pretty distressing. You don't want to introduce medications that could complicate things any further. Sure. But yes, essentially the, the drugs um, that uh, I would use are similar to what you, you're using. And I should um, highlight the, the scenario Fergal and I are talking about right now is opioid withdrawal management, as in withdrawing of opioids and not commencing opioid substitution therapy yeah. as, as a bridge, which is something we rarely do for relapse prevention issues, which we'll talk about a bit later on in this episode. But the other drug, and you did um, highlight it a bit earlier, is buprenorphine as a tool to aid in cessation of opioids as as a withdrawal management tool. Yeah. Do you have much experience using buprenorphine as a tool to get patients to cease opioids or manage withdrawal symptoms during opioid withdrawal? Yeah, I mean, you've alluded to the fact that we don't really do this much, but you know, because because it's not a it's not a standard intervention that, that we would offer, but. It's still part of the range of treatments that we need to offer because we need to, you know, we need to meet the patients halfway. And, you know, for some patients, short, sharp detoxes is what they want. And, you know, notwithstanding my view that short, sharp detoxes don't really work in the long term, you know, you can't, you can't force a patient to take a treatment that, that they don't want to take. So, you know, it is part of the recipe of things that we can do. And I suppose a short, sharp buprenorphine detox basically involves rapidly titrating a patient once they're in with early withdrawal you start buprenorphine and you rapidly titrate to say 12 milligrams you know over the next one to two days and then you rapidly decrease back down to zero over a week to 10 days so really it's a it's a detox program that's uh maybe 10 10 to 14 days duration and there is some evidence that suggests that it's better tolerated than symptomatic withdrawal that we've discussed previously um I actually combine both, you know, my, I've got the greatest experience that I've got in detoxing patients off opioids is to say, well, we'll give you symptomatic relief and we'll start you on a short, sharp buprenorphine regime as well. So I, I tend to do both. And I think we've spoken a tiny bit about this, but there is a reason why we don't just do isolated opioid withdrawals without commencing patients on opioid substitution therapy. And that's due to the risks of relapse and the risk of relapse to opioid use in a patient who no longer has no uh, who no longer has the opioid tolerance that they previously did, which increases the risk of overdose and death. So, I, I guess we should hasten to add that although it's important to know how to manage opioid withdrawal, um, I, I would say that uh, our experience and, and the evidence would suggest that an opioid withdrawal in isolation can be quite a dangerous thing, and it can increase a patient's risk of death. But yeah. sometimes some patients will ask for, for certain treatments and, and management. But mm. best practice care and gold standard for opioid use disorder would be opioid substitution therapy, a period of stabilization and potentially weaning opioid substitution therapy if indicated and if that's in the yeah. patient's goals or continuing opioid substitution therapy. Yeah. Would, you, yeah. would you agree with that, Fergal? Yeah, totally. I think you know a, a short, sharp detox increases your your risk of uh, respiratory depression if you if you start using again because you've lost your tolerance and so it is a very risky thing to to, to embark on without considering your your aftercare i mean the other thing i want to mention in this context is the duration of opioid withdrawal i mean 
Um, you know, so an opioid withdrawal per se lasts five to seven days. So it's a bit like alcohol, you know, despite that length of time. After five to seven days, you're, you're probably going to be over the worst of the physiological symptoms. But that doesn't address the underlying addiction. Because remember, opioid withdrawal maybe lasts a week. Opioid addiction can last years. And so what are you going to do after the first week? You know, if you don't actively treat the addiction, um, but, you know, and that involves intense psychosocial support, relapse prevention medication, and possibly opioid substitution therapy, then really you're, um, you're exposing yourself to a lot of risk, including the risk of, of hypnocytic of overdose and death. And I think that just highlights how interesting addiction medicine is. And it's not just about the physical aspects of addiction, right? It's not just yeah. you go through a detox and you're cured of your opioid use disorder. Yeah. Yeah. It's that whole biopsychosocial model. And yeah. I guess in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've talked in depth about opioid withdrawal, both the symptoms of opioid withdrawal, the medications we use to treat um, opioid withdrawal, and also discussed some of the dangers of standalone opioid withdrawal by and of itself without relapse prevention strategies and the consideration of opioid substitution therapy. So thank you once again for your attention on this episode of Cracking Addiction. Please do remember to like and subscribe to both the YouTube channel and the podcast. So thanks again for your support and bye for now.